Hello and welcome to the very first Beaver Pod. We have with us the dream team of Hugh Griffiths, who's Junior Vice President and President-elect Lucy Grieve. Hi both. Hello. Hi everybody. So today we are going to run through some parish news, let you know what's going on in the industry. We'll then move on to a quick chat about uh, vaccines, vaccine rules, and harmonisation, and we'll finish off with a uh, a run-through of how Lucy got to where she is today. So starting off with our parish news, um, the key points of things that have happened in the last couple of weeks are that we have um, back on the UK market our supplies of authorised flunixin injections. So that means that finidine, now reformulated to remove the DEA um, excipient, is, is back available. Um, and mefloxil for non-food producing horses only is available and that of course still contains the DEA. So that's good news. Um, secondly, EVJ has published online a quantitative gait analysis virtual issue. Um, so you can access that by heading over to Wiley Online Library via the Beaver website and reading up about that contentious, potentially contentious issue. Hugh, any thoughts on gait analysis? I think everybody's got a different opinion on it, haven't they, as always. So I think with this, especially with this, it'd be great if you know our membership can get involved and, and have a play around with um with the technology that's there and um and then get back to us and if you can feed back to us what you think of it, then um, it'll put a bit more meat on the bones to, to all the different opinions that we've got. Great. Um on on Mind Matters, the RCVS Mind Matters Research Symposium, the second one of those took place at the end of September, um, pushing forward health and well-being in the profession. Lucy, that's an area where you have a particular interest, isn't it? Yeah, certainly. And um, I think it's great that, you know, it continues to be a very important subject uh, that people are prioritising. And um, we're seeing more and more interest in the area and more and more uptake and more activity. So I think it's fantastic that um, that we've got such a good attention, if you like, towards the subject. Grand. Uh, also, we have, um, thankfully for all those students who've attended University of Surrey School of Veterinary Medicine over the last few years, uh, notification that the degree has received RCVS Council approval, meaning that pending final approval from the Privy Council, those who have finished their veterinary degrees will be able to register and practice in the UK. Uh, any thoughts on that, Hugh? Yeah, well, I think it's great news for, for the students at Surrey and for, for the University of Surrey itself. Um, and my only thought process was with that, for our student members of whether, whether we've considered as the number of potential vet schools are increasing, whether at some point in the future, there could be a converse situation where, where maybe one of, the, one of the schools that haven't put their names forward yet may not meet the RCVS approval and therefore what would happen to those students who've who've engaged on the course and spent a lot of time working towards something that wouldn't be available. So hopefully um, preparing for something would, that would never happen. But I think um, Beaver probably does need to spend five minutes thinking about this and how we can represent those students. Good point. Good point. Um, well, very good news that Surrey have got through. Have you had any Surrey students see, doing EMS with you, Lucy? Yeah, we have. Yeah, quite a few. And um, they seem like a really good bunch, very well-rounded, very um, 
nice individuals and and certainly good clinical knowledge and um and, and hands-on experience as well so very impressed with the ones we've had certainly grand good let's look forward to seeing more of them in the profession and as beaver members final note for the for today is that the british horse racing association has updated the industry regarding the administration of bisphosphonates to horses under three and a half years old now the base the background to that um, is that there was an international move to ban the use of bisphosphonates in, in youngsters. Um, the BHA has introduced that rule quicker than other racing jurisdictions, which is all fine, but um, it leaves France and Ireland behind the curve. So there is the possibility of horses entering the sales at TATS this year, which have been treated overseas with bisphosphonates under three and a half years old. Um, and that, that those bisphosphonates may not be identified in any testing until after the sale. And therefore, those horses would subsequently be banned for life from racing in the UK. Lucy, there's been, been a lot of chat about this, hasn't there? Yeah, there has. And I think the big issue is the, the, the testing involved hasn't been fully validated. And I think the, the, the big worry is that while at the moment you can still test the horses post-sale and then return them if they come back positive, um, unfortunately, we're not sure how likely uh, or how how often it may occur that a horse would be negative post-sale, for instance, but then test positive later down the line, maybe once it's in training and slightly older um, via a different test. You know, we're talking urine, blood, different types of assays, things like that. So there's quite a lot of detail involved that still hasn't properly been discussed. And I think that's caused quite a lot of unrest amongst um, vets, particularly in terms of how they advise their clients when it comes to buying young racehorses, yearlings even. So um, yeah, we'll have to watch this space, I think, to see what emerges and and what discussions take place. Absolutely. Um, Word of warning, take care when buying your expensive youngsters. Um, (laughs) So that's the news. We can now move on to our lead topic for today, which is vaccination rules. So Lucy, maybe two years ago, you started looking into the variation in flu vaccine rules and regulations amongst the various different disciplines and bodies that we come across. Um, what did you What did you find there? Yeah, it came out, came came about by by frustration. Really, I was um, struggling myself <laughs> to get my head around all the different rules and the different regulations and advising clients, you know, how to not end up in trouble and being being inappropriately vaccinated for the discipline they were were performing in. So, I decided to just create a a handy little leaflet that I'd keep in the car that had all the different sort of regular bodies and what their rules were. And how they differed, you know, sort of importantly highlighted between between the different associations. And as I drew this up, it just became blatantly obvious that there was just a huge variation. And it was almost, you know, difficult to understand, even when it was all written out in front of you in plain English and, and, and as simple as possible. So I, I really felt for you know clients who were trying to understand it as well. Um, and then we, yeah, then from there, there was a simultaneous kind of discussion being had with Richard Newton and uh, the Animal Health Trust um, that were all in agreement that we needed to reach some sort of harmonisation um, amongst all these different associations. And that was a process that began around the same time. So that, yeah, so that all came together and, and actually things seemed to be moving forward. So racing had engaged with the discussion, um, certainly the BHA had engaged with the discussion. 
and the BEF had engaged with the discussion. And that all happened around last Christmas. And then we pop into New Year and find that we have a flu outbreak and everything everything changes. Obviously, the first thing that changed was racing, immediately moving on to um, vaccination within six months of competition as a first stage. Uh, and then similar sort of time, the BEF, following advice from the Animal Health Trust, um, strongly recommended to its bodies that all of them adopted the six-month rule. Um, but not all of them took it, Hugh. No, and I think that's that's the difficulty, isn't it? I think everybody everybody came up with their own set of rules, and I think it's very hard for for the horse owning population to then to then work their way through that. Um, one other interesting backdrop to that was sort of I think our horse owning population feel that they are doing a gold standard with regard to vaccination, full stop, um, compared to to other countries. But um, if you compare ourselves to our European counterparts, which is obviously controversial this week. Um, we are not doing a great job. Um, the industry information I got yesterday was that we've got about a 50% vaccination across the board for our for our equine population, whereas countries like Sweden and Germany, um, they're, they're floating around the sort of 80-85% mark. And again, if you compare that to the measles situation in the human populace for us, then um, you know we've just lost our disease-free status there because our vaccination rates have dropped to, to below the, the cutoff around sort of 85%. So there was no surprise with this outbreak that it was going to turn into to a significant outbreak just because um, the percentage of population that we have that are regularly vaccinated isn't high enough to, to minimise that. Yeah. That, fig- that figure staggers me. You are, I mean, it's obviously you've got it from a good source, I know, but I had no idea. I know and I knew we were below the 50%. I sort of thought we were more like the 40%, but I knew we were pretty low, but I had no idea that some... European countries were were up around the eighty percent. That's are you surprised by that, Lucy? Yeah, I think, that, and I'm very impressed to hear that, that they they achieved that level of vaccination. I mean, I suppose you'd have to look at the reasons why. Are there is there a sort of high proportion of um, professionals in those countries keeping horses? I mean, we know You're we have a large horse population, aren't you? With... <laughs> no, but it's, it is interesting, isn't it? I mean. Because certainly when you talk to specific practices in the UK, they, they feel like they have a very good vaccination uptake. So it's obviously horses floating in between practices, I guess, which may not be vaccinated. But I, I think the big question is, how do you how do you ever really get a, a true number on these figures? I mean, it's it's very difficult. We don't know what the horse populations are probably in most of these countries, do we? So it's, it is a little bit um uh, guesswork isn't it it is a little bit and, uh, and looking back at the AHT month by month or outbreak by outbreak reports certainly in a period of the year there seemed to be an awful lot of horses or an awful, awful lot of outbreaks that were the result of a horse being imported onto the yard it being unvaccinated and in nine times out of ten it coming from Ireland so it's just perhaps mm. the Irish young stock aren't particularly well vaccinated yeah, and I think we're still seeing that as well. I don't know about you, Hugh, but certainly when I go out to see some recently imported horses from Ireland, even now, they're, they're often not vaccinated still. So unfortunately, the outbreak hasn't <laughs> hit home with some um, as well. Yeah, as I'd agree with that, Lucy. And, but, and also even sort of the UK population, not to not to blame the others. Um, you know, I've got studs who 
can't quite justify yeah. vaccinating those sort of fold through to three three year old cohort just because they're not planning on selling them until they turn three and you know to get their vaccinations up to date costs a x amount of money and and then the price differential isn't quite strong enough for them to do that so I, I do empathize with those young animals that are with owners who are struggling to to justify the expenditure yeah interesting what about what do you think about the um uh, the BHA's move to go from the sixth monthly rule, which was where seemingly the epidemiological data suggests we should do to have maximum protection, extending that to eight months plus one, so effectively nine months, um, on the basis of concerns that trainers had. Who should be? Who do you think should be in the driving seat on setting these regulations? Lucy, I. I... I think we have to look at the science, don't we? And I think we can't ignore what the epidemiological studies and the and the um, uh, what the scientists are telling us we should be doing. I, I, I accept that the reason they extended from the six month um, interval was because of the training seasons and things like that, and people are worried about vaccinating horses in the middle of, of the season and middle of training, but. Um, that perhaps needs to be weighed up with the consequences um, of of not having horses immunologically, um, you know, satisfactorily um, health status, I suppose, outracing, out you know, and, and particularly when that population is moving about so much, if you think about it, it's probably the most mobile population of horses in, the, in this country, yeah. isn't it, the race horses? And so in a way, they're the most important ones to be um their highest immunity but yeah there, there's definitely a balance to be struck and and you can't ignore the fact that there are concerns from trainers but it does need to be borne in mind that the science may may have to lead the way unfortunately absolutely and uh, but it's not just it's not just trainers who are having an influence on this i i sort of understand that the reason british dressage haven't changed um to the six months guidance where british eventing did immediately and then british dressage did more recently British show jumping are still on the annual, um, uh, the annual revaccination. That that one of the re- drivers for that was the impact it would have on imported horses not being able to compete if they didn't comply. Do you that sound? Yeah, again, I tend tender, to agree with Lucy. Think? I think it has to be driven by science as opposed to anything else, doesn't it? And I think we we probably have a responsibility, you know, with our membership to try and get some sort of cohesion across the board here and help our clients understand that if the reason for something is scientific, then that can't be different, depending on if you're doing dressage or if you're doing show jumping. It's it's very, very hard to have that a sensible chat with your client, um, especially in a livery situation where if you've got a really smart livery yard and you're literally telling, going from box to box or stall to stall, giving different information, depending on whether it's a jumper or a dressage horse. Um, so I think, you know, sort of, our job is probably to to back up the science and then keep spreading that scientific word across and trying to get these organizations to to all sort of join us on the same hymn sheet which i know is is never easy but it has to be the way that we um that we have to aim to drive this and i presume also i mean from the point of view of international competitors they're, they're not sort of entering and turning up the next day are they i mean that presumably these people have competition schedules and plans in place so they you would they you would, unfortunately would just have to you would like to think so wouldn't you i think the challenge yeah. is you know there seems to be lots of reasons why not and i i would agree with you and perhaps mm. we should sort of finish up on on your point there Hugh, that 
it, we should be basing it all on the science and we should be doing the best thing to everyone singing from the same hymn sheet. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Well, absolutely. I think that brings us to the end of our time for today. Um, so thank you very much on that topic. We will continue by talking to Lucy about her her ascent to the dizzy heights of uh, president-elect of the British Equine Veterinary Association next. Uh, and Hugh, we will see you again in a fortnight. Thank you very Cheer much. Out. Good luck, Lucy. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye, Hugh. So, Lucy, this is a thing that we thought might be interesting for listeners as they're driving along in their cars to the next call. Um, it's how you got to where you are. So what what started you off down the road to being a veterinary student and a vet, Lucy? I was that typical horse-obsessed uh, child and certainly not coming from a horsey family. It was a slightly peculiar thing for my parents to have to um, get used to. But yeah, I was from the word go just completely pony obsessed and weirdly according to my dad used to sit there taking notes of the veterinary section in horse and pony magazine when I was supposed to be apparently sailing and doing rugby and playing netball um, I had a lever arch file at some very young age which I don't even want to know how young I was it's a bit embarrassing right. and it's geeky. difficult to see you in that nerdy way so and, and university which I yeah. know where you're at, but we're, tell everyone. Yeah, I went to Cambridge University um, having had a gap year. So I, I did it a little bit differently. I actually got my results because my predictions weren't, well, well, they weren't perfect. So I got my results and took a year out and then applied during my gap year to Cambridge um, and got in and, yeah, had a wonderful time at Cambridge pretending I was a, a real academic. <laughs> <laughs> and then after, after you'd left those dreaming spires... Yeah. So what happened was I saw practice at Rossdale's um, in my final year. And um, despite Andy Bay taking a, a, a huge dislike to me initially, I gather that's pretty common now I know him well. Um, he actually offered me my elective project in my final year and I got to you know work with him on that. And then he approached me to ask if I'd like to be a guinea pig for a new position that they were starting at Rossdale's, which was a new graduate internship for one year doing diagnostic imaging. And I um, toyed with the idea for some time because I wasn't sure if that was such a good thing to do as a first job, whether I should be going into general practice first. But uh, Rob Pillsworth, one of my heroes, actually said, you will not get a better place than Rostell's to get exposed to a multitude of cases and information and you will, by osmosis, learn more than you could possibly imagine off all the people there. So with that advice, I took the job and started at Rostell's very, very, very wet behind the ears. <laughs> <laughs> and you were there for? I was there for just over a year, um, did the internship. Um, and then just by coincidence, having met a, another equine vet in Newmarket on a CPD event, Beaver CPD event, um, I'd been riding a horse for her in my spare time. And she said, I need another vet to come and work with me at Darley as an in-house vet. Would you be interested? So I thought, well, that kind of job doesn't come up very often. Uh, again, slightly you know, narrow field. It was working with mainly yearlings and, and um, rehabbing older racehorses. And I thought, well, you know, let's go for it. Why not? I mean, sod it, you know, got to take these opportunities when they come along. So um, off I went to Darley as a sort of two year, uh, well, in my second year of graduation, I suppose, and uh, spent eight years there working with thoroughbreds. And enjoyed every minute or? 
Yeah, I mean, it was a weird job. No clients, I suppose. So that was that was uh, interesting. Bearing in mind, I'd never dealt with clients during my internship, particularly either, because I'd been very much in the imaging department behind the scenes. So um, I, I was still only dealing with trainers, and um, it was a very privileged position. Obviously, money was was um, it meant that we could do a lot in terms of uh, veterinary investigations and things like that. So I, I got to see cases through and learn an awful lot, especially orthopedically. Um, but yeah, it was, a, it was an odd job. I'm not going to, you know, pretend it wasn't <laughs> because you, you were working literally within a sort of quarter of a mile radius in several different yards with the same people every day. But it was yeah. fantastic to be part of a big team and a very, um, you know, unusual company like that. You know, they, they're not common, these kind of very large thoroughbred industries kind of companies. So that was a, a real experience and, and one that I'll, I was very grateful to get. And during that time, you uh, you got married and got pregnant and got beaten up by a horse. Yes, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> I ticked <laughs> quite a few boxes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I did. I got married, um, got beaten by, up by a horse after getting married. Um, suffered a bit of a, a, a an injury to my knee, which was not career ending, but very um, very. Um, career threatening I suppose you could say going forward um but yeah had had some surgery had some time off and then um then yes getting pregnant with my first child um unfortunately my position at Dali came to an end um during that time but then I was very lucky that I'd been in touch with the Rossdale's guys um because they were obviously still down the road and I um knew them very well and they offered me a job when I was you know ready to come off maternity leave and start to start work again and I was very lucky to get a part-time position at Rostell's doing ambulatory work so normal GP work for the first time in my career. <laughs> <laughs> and was that and that's where you are now? Yep still there haven't <laughs> got rid of me yet. <laughs> <laughs> and and any any doubts any points at which you thought this career isn't for me? Um, no, actually, I think I'm really lucky and I feel really, um, very, very privileged to be able to say that, that no, since, since I embarked on the university course, I've always grown to love my job and my career more and more actually as time goes on. And I think we're quite lucky as a profession in that we've got a really small profession. Like that's the bit I like the best is that we really, you know, you, you really get to know people and it's a small world. And whilst that might put some people off, in, in some respects, I think it's a nice thing. And I, I love the fact that you go on any course, any Congress, wherever, and you will come across people, you know, time after time. And it's a, it's a family. And I do think that you don't get that in every profession. Um, so it's something that, that's, that's definitely made, made it all the right decision for me. Perfect. Very much about the social side of things, in case you haven't gathered. <laughs> that I think is probably the point at which we should wind it up. Brilliant. Lucy, thank you very much. That was fascinating. <laughs> Thank you, David. Take care. Take care. Bye.